I would ask that you take your Bibles and let's turn to the second volume of Samuel, the 11th chapter, 26th verse, which is just the end of the 11th chapter there. We're going to go through the 13th verse of the 12th chapter of this historian work. Second volume of Samuel, chapter 11, verse 26. We are living in very important times. Uh, These times are going to be definitive, not just for our generation, but for the generations to come. And we've made some shifts in thinking in recent time that are going to have profound implications for how we live life, not just uh, in individual ways, but in corporate ways and as a nation and as a world. Uh, One of the examples of that shift that has been made comes from the area that I know uh, best, and that's the area of counseling. The mental health professionals uh, use a diagnostic manual that helps us understand what is mental health and what is not mental health and how do you explore that with someone. And one of the areas that has been of fascination to mental health for uh, long periods of time, but especially in this last two decades, is that of a delusion. What is a delusion? Well, in the 19 years since the DSM-4 came out to the DSM-5, which just came out a couple of years ago, we've seen a dramatic shift in our thinking about what is a delusion. In the year 1994, this is what we defined the delusion being. A false belief based on incorrect inference about external reality that is firmly sustained despite what anyone else believes and despite what constitutes incontrovertible and obvious proof or evidence to the contrary. Now in the last 20 years, our culture has shifted away from calling anything false or subjecting anything to proof. In our postmodern culture, we have come to the conclusion that, in fact, there is no right or wrong. There is no such thing as sin. There is no such thing as truth. There's nothing that you or I can say about another person's life because all truth is relative to them. And so, in the DSM-5 now, which is the standard, the gold standard for mental health, this is what we say. Delusions are fixed beliefs not false beliefs, not incorrect ones. Delusions are fixed beliefs that are not amenable to change rather than incorrect about external reality in light of conflicting evidence, not incontrovertible and obvious proof. Now, I'm only, of course, contrasting the first sentence of each of the two volumes But if you were to go to them, and I encourage you to do so, you'll find that the the definition reflects this shift that we find in the first sentence throughout the whole. I want you to think about that for just a moment. It's not only part of our pop culture, which we've heard in our songs and in our films and in our uh, kind of popular way of thinking that this postmodern has come in, that there is no truth, uh, there is no faults, There is no good. There is no evil. Uh, That beliefs are only opinions. uh, That they're not based on any external reality to which anyone is accountable. This postmodern philosophy and morality has been around. We've been immersed in it. We've seen it 
Uh, most of you who are younger have grown up surrounded by it, and it seems normative to you. But it is interesting, and actually it's alarming, that it has now become a part of the diagnostic manual that professionals use to define mental health. And even if the professionals now claim you can't prove what is real and what is delusional, and that all we can really say is that it is a delusion if it's fixed and not amenable to change, even when evidence conflicts with it, whatever that means, since you don't have any external reality by which evidence is to be defined and you can't prove anything, then as we've seen in the last 19 years, we've moved into a moral, philosophical, mental quicksand. And it has taken over even the profession of our mental health practitioners who are trying to help us stay sane. Now, I bring that up because today we're continuing the story of David and Bathsheba. While very fascinating, as we saw last week, what David did when sin came into his life and he tries to manage it and make it not as destructive as we all know sin to be, David also lived in a delusion. He thought that he could have an affair with the wife of his neighbor and that this faithful, honest man he could then kill, and then he could marry this lady, and they could live happily ever after. He thought there was no larger moral reality that would hold him accountable. Not because it's a rule that he had to obey, but because morality, the moral law, is as much a part of reality itself as is physical law, the laws of nature. And if you try to break the moral law, the moral law will break you. It was placed into our world and into our existence by the creator of that. David thought he could get by with sin and live long and prosper. He was deluded. But he's no different from those today who think there is no moral law, no moral reality. There is no creator who placed within the creature this sense of moral justice and rightness. There is no creator who placed within creation these laws that live themselves out such that you reap what you sow and it will come back to you. There is no truth, there is no life, and there is no way, for morality is relative. Of course, none of this is new. Proverbs, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, written 3,000 years ago, very different culture from the culture in which you and I have been immersed in this popular postmodern, as we call it, which is anything but postmodern. It is something that has been around for a long time. The wisdom literature says to us, we can try to convince ourselves that each of us can do what we think is wise in our own eyes and still live long and prosper. But it simply isn't true. It's a delusion. The wisdom of the ages have proven it to be true. In life after life and culture after culture, in nation that rose and fell, in nation that rose and fell. The difference today, and perhaps it's a little different in our culture because of the this mass uh, popular culture that impacts not just California on our own lives, but the world 
in this perception of reality, this larger, popular, professional, political culture, really does think that we can define our own reality by our own human opinions. They really believe that. And if we desire something, anything, including our neighbor's wife, if we want it, then we should grab it and go for it. And who are you and who is God to say I can't or to say it's wrong or to say that it's false or say that it's incontrovertible proof that destruction will come upon us. So let's come to the story now of David and Bathsheba. The, the lessons in life are are given to us so that we can live long and prosper in all the ways that God intends his creatures to experience wholeness and fullness of life. So let's look at David and Bathsheba. We're going to look at that moment when his pastor, Nathan, breaks through his delusion and he confesses that he has sinned. And we want to see the dynamics of that breaking through. So the historian writes these words. Now, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband would, was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and another poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight 
before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan then replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now keep that open before you. Father, as Ruth was reading Psalm 51, and David was lamenting the depth of his sin, he expressed that we're born into this fallenness, that we often do what we know is wrong in your eyes, and then try to either push you away or live by different ways, justifying what we've done. You've asked us to humble ourselves, to come before you, to confess our sins, to make honest confession. And so as we enter this time of sacrament, we would ask that you would meet with us in truth and in, in real, spiritual, eternal reality. Cleanse us. We'll give you all honor and praise. Amen. It is, of course, a proven fact of history, and many of the great religions acknowledge it, that the consequence of breaking the moral law is that the moral law will break you in the very same way that you broke the ways of God. In David, it was adultery, murder, the curse of the sword, all the things that David did in secret, thinking that he could get by with it, they came back to him in the light of the day. If you've read the account and you've read what happened to his life, you know that to be true. But the question that I bring to that moment in history, and then actually I bring it to my life, and I bring it to our lives, why would he not know that to be true? Why do we not know that to be true? How could he and we not know that it's a delusion to think that there is no larger moral reality that causes all the world to be blessed and, and prosper and there's trust and hope and faithfulness and love and unity when you live by the ways of God, but when you do not, it disintegrates from the inside out and the outside in and everything implodes upon itself because you cannot live with the liar, the thief, the murderer, the coveter, those who worship other things than the real, real God and the reality that God has produced. How could he not know that there is truth? How can we not know that there is false? How could we not know that there's correct and incorrect and incontrovertible proof of what is truly mental health and moral life. How could we not know that there's far more than just our own individualistic perceptions and desires and wants and justifications? How could we not know and live in that larger reality? How could we not know that the word of the Lord is true and he's trustworthy? Has it not been proven for literally thousands of years to be true? How could we not know that we lean on our own understanding Understanding when we only think of what is wise in our own eyes, that that will take away our health and our future. 
Well, the answer to that is the crux of the human condition. And it takes us to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the very center of who we are and what God has done so that we might have life. Nathan appealed to David's innate, God-given sense of the natural law that there's something true and just about being compassionate and empathetic and caring for the poor. That we don't take the little that they have so that we can keep more of what we have. That there is something that should be outcrying within us when we see that and we say it's not true. He must die. He must pay if he does that. How can we not know that? We've seen it this week. And the natural law broke into the delusion of our culture. Our culture literally kills the innocent unborn every minute of every day. And isn't a delusion that thinking that somehow that is a moral and a right and a just place. Yet we're appalled when a rich man goes to a poor country and kills a beloved lion. We can see his sin so clearly. It is so wrong to kill. And yet we do it. And we excuse it. And we legalize it. The difference between seeing other sins and seeing our own is, of course, the message of the Bible. When David confessed his sin, the Lord forgave his sin and cleansed him of all that wasn't right. And he no longer had to die as he had proclaimed upon this man that he should die because everything within his justice system would say, yes, this person must pay the price. The very judgment that he himself pronounced was upon him. And yet David confessed his sin and God forgave his sin. This personal humility is the beginning of healing, both for ourselves individually, for us as a community, for us as a land, a nation as a whole. God said to Solomon, David's own son, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Notice he did not say if pop culture will humble itself, or if mental health professionals will humble themselves, or if the politicians will humble themselves. No, he says, if my people who are called by my name, Christ wants Christians, humble ourselves, then he will heal our land. I believe we are at a crossroads as a land. And we are either going to come to the cross and humble ourselves, and God will send revival upon us such that we recognize the moral truth of who God is and who human beings are and the great, great value of life in every way. Until we experience the truth of that, then we will either bring about a transformation that will heal the land, or we will continue down a path that is imploding internally and externally as we leave behind the truth of God and his teachings to us. We need to humble ourselves, the scripture says, and the sacrament itself is the act of humbling 
It's the sacred moment, the sacrament of communing with God. The invitation is a simple one for all of you who humble yourself and humbly kneeling make honest confession to Almighty God. Then he will forgive and he'll cleanse and he'll, he'll make things whole and we get to begin again in a new and, and vital and life-giving way. For he's the way, the truth, and the life. And in him we find the solutions to the great struggle that is so plaguing us as a nation and as individuals. We invite everyone to come forward and to be a part of the sacrament. You do not have to be a member of a church or any church. This is a humility before God, a confession of sins before Him, a forgiveness of Him. The words as we say them, let them be your words. The act of partaking and, and inviting and humbly receiving Jesus Christ is a biological, spiritual, emotional, and communal act. It's a holistic experience, a mystery, beyond any human description, a sacred moment. And we invite all of you to come forward and to do that.